If you want something fascinating to Google when you get home, look up lava photography. Not only will you see some amazing pictures of volcanoes in the middle of an explosion and some of this glowing red steaming stuff going down a mountain, but the stories that you can read of how these people get these pictures are just amazing. The links that they go to are incredible. Some of them are fortunate enough to live near the world's active volcanoes like in Hawaii or a few other places. Most of them don't live near any of them, but they keep tabs on the volcanoes of the world. And when word gets out that one of them is doing something interesting, they'll all call into work or cancel whatever plans they have, cancel their doctor's appointment, get on a plane, and they'll wind up congregating in this one volcano that's doing something incredible. Now, once they get there, the links are even more incredible. You know, of course, a volcano is usually a big mountain, and so you've got to hike up this mountain to get there. As you do, the closer and closer you get, the less and less stable the ground is. So things could slide at any moment and take you with them, or you could wind up underground because the ground under you has crumbled. It could wind up thrusting you right into the lava or into the boiling ocean that has lava flowing into it. So they are at points walking, you know, as if they were on eggshells, just trying to get to the spot where they can take this picture. As if that were not enough, there are poisonous gases coming from the lava. And so a slight shift in wind or a miscalculation on your part could mean one breath kills you. So they're navigating around that while they're trying to take these pictures. And you never know when things are just going to explode on you. Never mind that the heat coming from the lava is enough to melt your gear, sometimes melt your shoes, or if you're wearing a plastic bracelet, you might regret that you were wearing a plastic bracelet. One of them is named Bruce, and he tells a story of one time when he was out. He had set up his tripod. He'd gotten everything perfect. He was about to take a few pictures, and then he noticed that the wind shifted. And so he was going to need to get out of there before that gas came to him. So he took 10 quick photographs and ran off. Then, from several feet away, he looked back to where he was, figured the gas was passing by right about now. He heard a loud hiss and then saw the ground where he was standing crumble and then explode with lava. And the next day, he didn't quit. He says he went right back out and took more pictures. I imagine every mother of a son is just shaking their head right now, right? But his exact words were, I just can't get enough, right? The stuff is just so amazing that he is drawn to it, and he can't stop going out marveling at it and taking pictures of it. Now, we want to shake our heads at that, but the truth is, we all have a little bit of Bruce in us. When we find something that is truly amazing, we're hooked. That's just how people work. A childcare worker that holds a child in their arms and senses the wonder of new life very often is just like, sign me up for life. This is amazing, right? A, a sailor who gets the taste of the depth and breadth of the ocean and of its power before long is just out to sea all the time because he's hooked. When we find something awesome, it pulls us in. 
And that is because it is written on our hearts to find something incredible and to marvel before it. We're not happiest when we're looking at ourselves in a mirror absorbed with ourselves. We're happiest when we're looking at something else that is far more powerful and incredible than we are and even shaking a little bit at wonder of it. That desire is in your heart because it was meant to be filled. It was meant to be satisfied by someone who is in every way greater than any of these things I have talked about so far. In every way greater than any amazing thing you could find and be enthralled with. And what we have this morning in today's text is a rare glimpse into how holy this God is. How incredible this God is. Would you turn with me to Exodus chapter 3? We are going to look there for a rare glimpse into this God's holiness. We'll read verses 1 through 14. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppressions with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people. I am has sent me to you. 
the words of the Lord. What we have in these words again is a rare glimpse into the holiness of our God, which if we could bear to gaze into it, would move us to reevaluate our lives before him and offer wholehearted worship to him. We're going to focus this morning on two glimpses into that glory, this image of the burning bush that we saw in that story, and that holy name that is given there, that name I am, that great mysterious name. To say that God is holy is to say that he is set apart and different from everything else. We have a word, holidays, right? And a holiday is a day, but it is a different day. It's a day that's different from all of the others. Christmas is a special day, and so we say happy holidays around that time. What we literally mean is happy holy day, right? Happy different and special day. And in the way that those holidays are set apart from other days and special, our Lord God is set apart and different from everything else. He is special in that way. I had once, when Emily and I first got married, the, there was a diamond that was set into this ring. And it was the diamond that my mother wore for a few decades, the first few decades of her marriage with my father. Like a lot of men, when he was young, he didn't make much money, and so he got her a very small ring when they got engaged. But later in life, he started to make more money, and so he got her an upgrade a few decades into marriage. And so she hung on to that small stone, figuring there would be something to do with it. And when I proposed to Emily and we started talking about what we would do with rings and all that practical stuff, she said, well, hey, why don't you take this stone and why don't you set it in your ring as a memory of what the Lord has done in our marriage. And so we did. I took it to the jeweler. The jeweler sunk it in there, and so I walked around for a few months with my mother's stone in my ring. And then two or three months into our marriage, I looked down and the stone was gone. It had had fallen out of the ring. I don't know enough about jewelry to know if the jeweler was at fault in this or if that just happens. I don't really know. But I went back and I said, hey, what what can I do? It's gone forever. I don't know where it went. And the jeweler offered to replace it with another diamond of similar value. And that just wasn't the same because that stone was special and it was gone. That stone is different to me than all of the other stones. I don't know that I'll ever see it again, but if I do, it's special to me. In that way that something can be different and set apart from all other things, our God, our Lord, is different and set apart from anything else that you have ever known. Several glimpses we get into his holiness. The first one is, I'm just calling it his otherness. I don't know if that's a word, but if you like to write things down, that's the word to write down, his otherness. He is entirely different from anything that you have ever known, unlike anything that you have known. Things in this world and universe point you to him, but they are still altogether different from what he is. Sort of like the way that a picture of a person might point you to the person, but it's not the same as the actual person, right? You you might look at a picture of someone you love and say, yep, that's their nose, that's their eyes, and then you're remembering the person because you look at them. The picture might even make your heart leap the way that your heart leaps for that person. But in truth, they're very different things. 
One is made out of paper that will shrivel in the rain, and the other one lives and breathes and sneezes. They're entirely different things, though one can remind you of the other. Everything in this universe is like that with God. It may point you to him, but in truth, he is entirely different from the things that we have known. Several details in this story say this to us. First one is this strange and apocalyptic sign of a bush that is burning but is not consumed. This is the sort of move that later prophets do more often, and Moses does not do very often. Later, we'll see ordinary objects and ordinary things doing extraordinary things in the prophets. And the point is, whoa, that is different from what I expected. You know, you turn to Ezekiel in chapter 1, and you see four living creatures. Well, that's not strange, just living creatures. And there's a wheel next to the four living creatures. Wheels aren't strange. We see them all the time. But wherever the living creature goes, the wheel goes with the living creature, and the wheel does not turn as it moves, and around the rim of the wheel, it is covered with eyes. Now, there's nothing weird about eyes, nothing strange about wheels, nothing strange about living creatures. Those are all normal things. But when you start putting eyes on the rims of a wheel and they start moving without, all of a sudden things get very extraordinary. Part of the point here is that God is using images that we do understand to communicate a spiritual realm that we cannot really understand. He's describing the indescribable. Same thing will happen in Revelation. We'll get an image of a man, fire, and a sword. All of those are normal things. A man, fire, and a sword. The man is Jesus. The fire is his eyes. And the sword is coming out of his mouth. So we got ordinary things, but they're put together in such an extraordinary way that we know this Jesus he's talking about is very different from anything that we can understand. Ordinary images so that we can kind of connect with it, but so extraordinary because it's just so different from us. That's what's happening with this burning bush here. Nothing strange about fire, nothing strange about a bush, but a bush that is burning and not being consumed. That is unlike any fire that we have ever known or seen. And this God is unlike anything that we have ever known or seen. Moses calls that a great sign and goes over to see it because it's that strange and that intriguing. Then we get to this name, I am that I am. Very smart people have spilled a lot of ink and done a lot of this trying to describe what that name means. And there's no fit description. But there's one thing we can probably all get from it. It is a mysterious name that stops you in your tracks. You get to that part and you see in all caps, I am who I am. And whoa, this is, this is different from any other name that I have ever seen. That is because this God is different from anything that you have ever known. So two very blatant ways that God's otherness, his distinctness from anything in creation are made plain here. There are some subtle ways too. Moses likes to write with subtlety. He did that a lot in Genesis when we walked through. It's here as well. If you picture the man Moses and his ministry, just picture some great moment if you're familiar with his story, probably a 70% chance that there is water somewhere nearby in that scene that you were picturing. Maybe you're picturing Moses parting the Red Sea, and there is the sea 
Or maybe you're picturing him striking the rock and water comes out of it. Or maybe you're picturing the day that baby Moses was put into that little basket of reeds and sent floating down the Nile River. The princess then drew him up from the river and named him Moses, which means drawn out of. So even his own name refers to water. He's very much throughout the story a man that's associated with water. And the place that he meets God is very different. It's out in the wilderness, in the dry desert. On the same mountain as Mount Sinai, but it's called Horeb here, which means something like parched mountain or dry mountain. The image that he sees is a desert bush that is on fire. So here is the man of water encountered by fire in a land that is dry. A subtle way of saying that this God is very different from him. Now that's important because God will soon say to him, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron is like your prophet. Moses is going to go and represent God, be the voice of God to Pharaoh. But before that can happen, it has to be very plain that in truth, Moses is nothing like this God because no one is like this God. He is very different from this God. So the first thing we see then this plainly is that God is so very different from anything else that we've known. If you think you understand him, you do not. You may know him. Many of us in this room know him. Yet, we do not understand him because he is so different from us. Second glimpse into his holiness we get is his self-sufficiency. To say that he is self-sufficient is to say that he does not need anything. Everything in this world needs him and relies on him. He upholds it by the word of his power, but he needs nothing. That's not to say that he has all the food that he needs. That's to say that he doesn't need food. He is not dependent on anything to keep doing what he is doing. A few ways that becomes clear in this story. The first is a fire that has no fuel source. A fire that is burning a bush, but the bush is not consumed. And so there will not come a day when the bush runs out and the fire must go out. This is, again, unlike any other fire we've ever known. It's unlike anything else because it doesn't have a fuel source. It doesn't need anything to continue burning. It just burns. And in the same way, this God is self-sufficient. He needs no fuel. He needs nothing to keep doing what he is doing. He is the only thing in all that there is that is like this, that is self-sufficient. He also shows this to us in his name, I am. There is one who does not need anything. There is one who just is, who was who is, who is to come. He is not because of something. He just is. This God is self-sufficient. He is independent and needs nothing to accomplish his will. We would like to pretend that we are like him in this way. We like to pretend we're self-made people, right? We're self-sufficient. We're getting by on our own. But all we've got to do is hold our breath for 20 seconds. And we remember that we need him to give us air. Just go without food for a few days and we are reminded how much we need him to give us food. 
In this last year, how much have we sensed that even if we have our material needs met without fellowship and strong relationships in our lives, it just isn't as sweet because we are not self-sufficient. We cannot get by on our own. But in this way, the Lord God is so different from us. He needs nothing. He just does what he is pleased to do because he has no needs at all. That is a glimpse in his holiness. Another glimpse we get is his superiority over other gods. And this is shown in the question Moses asks before God reveals his name, I am. Let's look at verse 13 together and we'll see why it is that the Lord gave this name or maybe what happens right before the Lord gave this name. Moses says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? That's what happens right before God gives his name. Moses asks, what is your name? When they ask your name, what do I say to you? Now, there's a reason he expects people to ask the name of this God. They are growing up in a world that worships many different gods. So you might do one thing to worship the sun god today and something else to worship the frog god tomorrow because the season is coming soon and something else to worship the fertility god because you would really like another child. You're going back and forth between all of these gods. And then one appears and says, I'm the god of your fathers. The natural question is, okay, which are you the sun god? Are you the cloud? Which one is the god of my fathers among all of these gods? Polytheism just so ingrained in their mind that they don't really have a grid for one God being superior over them all. They're trying to figure out which God this is. All the nations of the world were living like this at this time. The Jewish people had good reason to believe that there was one God, but they were surrounded by a people who worshipped many gods. And so when Moses asks, which one are you? God's answer is... I am. I'm the one that exists. I'm the one that's real. And in doing so, he takes the table that is full of all of Egypt's idols and just clears it and puts himself as the sole God of the universe. It is hard for us to appreciate how mind-blowing that would be to someone in that day who has only known a world with many gods that are competing with each other and dueling with each other and have rivalries. This God says, no, I'm the only one. I have no rival. No one stands against me, and I can do whatever I please to do. I am the one that exists. So the point earlier was that nothing in this created world is really like him. He's unlike anything that we've ever known. The point here is that he is also unlike any of these other gods that we have made up, vastly superior to them all, because they don't even exist. The prophet Isaiah would pick up on this point in his book, chapters 40 to 48. He would say over and over again, who is like the Lord? Who can you compare to the Lord? There is none like the Lord. What are you going to compare the Lord to, he says in chapter 40? An idol? A craftsman casts it. He says it's made of wood or stone or jewels if you can afford it. The Lord God is nothing like any of these false gods or these false religions. He is superior to them all. So we see that he is unlike anything we've known. We see that he is totally self-sufficient. We see that he is superior to all false gods. 
we have there enough to see that he is worthy of our very best worship, isn't he? Whatever he demands in worship, we ought to give to him. He's worthy of it. And what he wants, what he desires, is for us to give him all that we have. To worship him with a whole heart. To worship him in spirit and in truth. We can do this if our imperfections are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. What he desires is worshipers that worship him in spirit and in truth. What we see here in these words is that he's worthy to ask for that. He is worthy to say the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments because he is worthy of that trembling reverence before him. That means something for us in these strange days when our worship is restricted, when our worship is, uh, you could say, limited by God's hand of providence. It has been a tragic year in many ways when it comes to the worship of God. For seven weeks in the spring, we had to cancel seven worship services in a row. And then in the winter, we had to do it again for five weeks in a row. And here we are now, our whole family is not able to gather yet. When we sing, our singing will be muffled by masks. A few weeks ago, there was snow all over the place, and very few of us could even get in here to do this. It's a season where we cannot offer to God what we want to offer to God, and our consciences can wrestle with that. That can be different. There's a few things we can learn here from this. One, when the situation changes, the worthiness of God to be worshipped does not change. And that is why in those strange mornings, we got up and we got the kids together and offered what worship we could offer at home. That's why those that can't be here today are on Zoom doing what they can, offering what they can. It also reminds us what the Lord requires, which is everything that we can give him. Jesus watched Pharisees come and give into the giving box, and they gave big gifts. And then he saw a widow come and give basically two pennies. And he said, that widow actually gave more than all of them. Why is that? Because she gave it all. She gave all that she had to give. And so what we have to do in a season like this, just give all that we have to give. If you can't be in worship, just give him what you can give. If you've got to sing muffled with a mask on, then sing. Just give him what we can. It's been a tragedy this year that the worship of this holy God has been so limited. I think everybody feels that. But I'll tell you what would be a greater tragedy. Greater than 12 canceled worship services would be one half-hearted worship service. The Lord is willing to accept what meager things we can give him now. But when he says to the people of Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. May those words never be said of us. Should the Lord bring the day soon, I pray, when this room is full and we are shouting in praise with no fear of harming our neighbors or spreading this lethal virus. Should the Lord bring that day, may we worship him with our whole hearts, with full-throated, glad sounds of praise. Why? Because we see in this picture right here, he is worthy of that kind of worship. Better to have our worship hindered than to offer half-hearted and unhindered worship. The next glimpse we have into God's glory creates a problem for us. 
We are more like those lava photographers I mentioned earlier than I let on. The predicament they're in is they are enthralled by this stuff. They want to get as close as they can to it. But there is a limit. If they get too close, it will be dangerous for them, right? What a a bad place to be in where you are drawn to something that if you get too close to it, it will kill you. Well, that is the predicament that we are in as well before this holy God. Let's look together at verse 5. The Lord says to Moses when he appears to him, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Two limits there. One, don't come any closer. Two, if you want to keep standing where you are, you have to take your sandals off. Why does the Lord tell him not to come any closer? Well, for the same reason that we'll read a verse later in verse 6. At the end of verse 6, after the quote, it says, And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This holy God appears to him, and he cannot come any closer. And he knows what he must do. It's hard to know. He must hide his face in fear to look at God. Now, was Moses wrong to do this? No. The theme comes up over and over again. Even through this story, no one can see the face of God and live. The people of God receive the law on this very mountain, and the instructions given to them are, mark the barrier of the mountain clear, and nobody set a foot on the mountain when God appears on it. Because if you set even one foot, you will die. You cannot come too close to this God. Later on, Moses will see the glory of God fully, except that the Lord will hide him and protect him. Because if he were to see the full glory of God, it would kill him. Later on, the prophet Isaiah would see God in a vision and he would cover himself and he would say, woe is me. Later on, Job would hear God speak and would see God reveal himself and he would cover his face. The prophet Elijah would have God revealed to him in a whisper, just a whisper of God's glory and he covers his whole face. Why? Because of one of the messages of Exodus, no one can see the face of God and live. There was once a day when we walked with God in his garden. He would come at the cool of the day and walk with us every day. But our sin has now put a separation between us and him. No one can see it. It's hidden from us. And if we were to see it, it would kill us. Do you see what a predicament we are in? The very thing that if you saw it, it would finally satisfy your heart. The very thing that your heart is driven to see, longing to see, if you saw it, it would kill you. What a pitiful state to be in. We are like those lava photographers in the very worst way. Our hearts long to see something that if we saw it, it would kill us. How precious then the promise of revelation for the saints of God, for his church, 
they shall see his face. How precious the words of 1 Corinthians. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then in a coming day, we will see face to face. How can that be? How can sinners see the face of God and live? The promise is there for us, but how can it be true? The beginning of that answer is in verse 8 of this text. And it's probably most clear in John chapter 8, so we'll turn there in a moment. Look with me at verse 8. This is the beginning of why sinners can see the face of God and live. And I have come down to deliver them. This is the reason he came. This is why he appeared to Moses. He said, yes, I am the Holy One. I am also the one who will deliver these people from slavery and bondage. When the Lord appears, he appears with a purpose to redeem his people from their bondage. This becomes much more robust in the book of John. Let's flip to the book of John chapter 8. This is one of those conversations that Jesus has that is very instructive. Sometimes he's talking with people that disagree with him. Sometimes he's talking to his own followers. What does it mean that the Lord came to deliver us from our bondage? Let's look at John 8. We'll start at verse 24. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he... You will die in your sins. So here's the problem. We're going to die in these sins that have separated us from God. Unless, he says, unless you believe that I am he. So whoever this Jesus is, if we believe that he is who he says he is, then we have hope of not dying in our sins. Otherwise, we're dying in our sins, separated from God forever. He tells a little bit more what that means, starting in verse 31. He's talking now to those who believe in him. He says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He said, freedom from all the truth will set us free. And they answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say we'll become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So because of... These things we have done, we are slaves to sin. A slave does not remain in the house forever. A son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So, God comes down, shows himself in a burning bush to deliver his people from slavery. Now this Jesus is coming saying, I am the son. And if I set you free from this bondage to sin, you are free Indeed. Now, how can this man walking the earth do that? How could he set us free from sin? Here is how. Move down to verse 58. Some of the most powerful words ever spoken. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That holy God appearing in a burning bush 
uttering the name, I am that I am. Everything he is, is wrapped up in this son, Jesus, fully revealed to us in this Jesus. Why can Jesus set us free from sin the same way that Yahweh set them free from slavery? Because he is the same Lord, the same one. This is exactly what he means when he says, before Abraham was, I am. One of the ways you can know that is what happens next. They pick up stones to throw at him. Why do they pick up stones to throw at him? Because they knew what he meant. He is saying, I am that God who appeared in the burning bush. I am Yahweh the Lord. This is the one. This Jesus is the one you must look to if you would see the face of God and live. If you would have your heart, which is chasing after every awesome thing that you can see. If you would have that awe-seeking heart satisfied by the sight of the face of God on high, this Jesus is the one you must look to. And this Jesus is the one of whom it is saying, they shall see his face. No one else can free you from sin. No one else can make you new. No one else can bring real justice into the world when he rules as king. This Jesus is the only one. If you would be satisfied, look to him and you shall see his face. Let's pray together.